I'm Robert Scherzer, Clinical Associate Professor, University of British Columbia, Department of Ophthalmology and Visual Sciences, and Director of the West Coast Glaucoma Center in Vancouver, British Columbia, and we're talking about glaucoma with episode number 11 for mid-March 2010 with my guests Joel Schumann and Claude Burgoyne. Today's topic, nerve fiber layer and optic nerve head imaging. Please check the show notes of this podcast for definitions and references related to HRT, GDX, and OCT imaging devices. You will also find links to follow me on Twitter, where I am Rob Scherzer, my glaucoma, EMR, and tech blog, wholelotofrob.com, and my website, westcoastglaucoma.com. Welcome everyone to this week's episode of Talking About Glaucoma, and today we're going to focus on imaging. Oh, I didn't didn't mean to put that pun in there. <laughs> uh, but we have with us today Joel Schumann from University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. Hi, Joel. Hi. And Claude Burgoyne is with us from Devers Eye Institute in Portland. Hi, Robin. Hi, Joel. Hi. I guess we could start by um, each of you just introducing yourselves just briefly and uh, what you've been doing uh, in recent years in terms of imaging. Uh, I'll start, though, by saying that Joel, as many of our listeners probably know, is one of the inventors of the optical coherence tomography and continues to make new advances in this technology. And Claude has made some amazing contributions in recent years with research in uh, spectral domain OCT. In fact, one presentation at a meeting, I forget what year that was, it was so overwhelming to everyone uh, that it even blew up your computer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would say that's more of a reflection on the operator than the presentation. <laughs> that's half stuff, huh? Yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, Joel, mind you give us a little blurb about yourself and then Claude? Uh, okay, uh, Joel Schumann. I'm at uh, University of Pittsburgh. Uh, I've uh, uh, been in Pittsburgh for about uh, seven years now. Before that, I was in uh, in Boston, uh, and while I was in Boston as a fellow, uh, became involved in uh, research in uh, laser tissue interactions, and was working in Carmen Poliofito's uh, laser laboratory, um, and then uh, uh, became aware of a project that was uh, going on uh, with uh, optical coherence domain ranging. Uh, this was um, looking at. Uh, the distance between surfaces, uh, so that was uh, looking at the distance between the front and the back of the cornea, and it was a, a project that wasn't really going anywhere uh, for a number of reasons. Um, and that uh, that project, though, was using this OCDR that uh, had a near-infrared wavelength, and uh, it occurred to me, uh, despite my lowly fellow status, uh, that... Um, this was a wavelength that could get to the retina. Uh, and um, I went in to talk to uh, Carmen Pliofito, who was the head of the laser laboratory, and uh, told him uh, my idea. And uh, he um, uh, said, 
that it would be okay for me to go over to MIT and work with this collaborator, Jim Fujimoto. Uh, and um, at that time, uh, David Huang was an MD-PhD student. David is now at uh, USC, uh, as, as is uh, Carmen Pliofito. Um David's a professor uh, with a subspecialty in cornea, and Carmen is the dean of the School of Medicine at USC. Um, so Jim Fujimoto, is, uh, who is still at MIT and still a collaborator, um, had uh, created a laboratory where OCT uh, uh, eventually was, was born. And on that day that I went over to um, uh, do some experiments with uh, David Huang, I brought over some calf eyes, and we uh, hemisected them so that uh, we could put the, the retina, essentially the, the half of the eye with the retina, under uh, the OCDR beam. Um, and uh, we set it up and went out to get some Diet Cokes because it took about 20 minutes to do a single scan. Uh, and it turned out that, um, indeed, uh, we were able to, uh, to get signal. Uh, and uh, we, we saw the spikes from the retina, and that was the, uh, the very first uh, uh, OCD or OCDR of the retina. OCT actually didn't come into being until David uh, had the insight that you could scan transversely, which seems obvious now because you do it with the ultrasound B-scan. Uh, but at the time, nobody had done it, and the best ideas seem obvious in retrospect. Um, and uh, that was uh, a major contribution from uh, uh, one of his many uh, from David. Um, and so that uh, scanning allowed you to take a series of A-scans put them together to uh, create an image, and that, that is what we now call OCT, or optical coherence tomography. And we no longer need to dissect the retina out of the patient's eye and leave them for 20 minutes before coming back. <laughs> yeah, not anymore. It, was, uh, it would have been tough to get through the, uh, the cloudy lens in those calf eyes, though. Yeah. <laughs> Well, thanks. That, that was uh, some history there I wasn't aware of. And, Claude, why don't you uh, fill us in briefly on what you've been up to? Surely. Your background. Um, well, uh, I've really uh, dedicated my research career so far towards um, understanding uh, the engineering of the optic nerve head, working with um, biomechanical engineers uh, to do that. And uh, the approach that we had take we have taken is to uh, work in the monkey model of experimental glaucoma, where we have the ability to sacrifice the animals at the end of our studies, and then uh, have obtained uh, the capabilities of building very high resolution uh, reconstructions of the optic nerve head tissues. And all of the capabilities that we built uh, in that regard, uh, so as to be able to make very accurate measurements of how the tissues change uh, as the monkey eye makes the transition from ocular hypertension to early glaucomatous damage um, are then used by the engineers to build progressively more sophisticated finite element models to try to understand how those changes occur. <clears throat> well, from our standpoint, we um, have been looking for how to translate this uh, post-mortem histomorphometric um, knowledge into clinical um, uh, into the clinical uh, realm and uh, we needed to do that in order to make progressively more sophisticated models of the eye with the ultimate goal being to acquire the ability to capture the kind of anatomy clinically that we now possess uh, in, in a post-mortem sense uh, 
with the emergence of OCT imaging out of uh, all of the people that Joel mentioned, and by the way, I hadn't heard that story either, so that was a pleasure to hear. Um, You know, we certainly saw the potential for trying to do that, and so I think what we have been doing over the last several years is trying to use the um, uh, the state-of-the-art techniques that we are able to uh, get through collaboration uh, to convince the rest of the world that we can actually apply uh, these imaging uh, techniques to the deep tissues of the optic nerve head. And I think Joe will tell you in a little while uh, all of the very important work that's been done on imaging, using these techniques to image nerve fiber layer uh, for all the right reasons. Uh, but the nerve head itself has been very difficult because of uh, the blood vessels and uh, many other reasons as well. Um, but I think with the current um, uh, advances, uh, particularly in spectral domain imaging, which uh, has increased the speed to such a degree that you can get enough A scans in a clinical imaging session to build, begin to build accurate um, uh, reconstructions. That uh, we're on the verge of being able to, to uh, obtain the kind of optic nerve head anatomy to see changes that I think will be very early in the neuropathy and. Uh, uh, lead us to uh, a lot of new insights, which uh, not only will have very important research implications, but will also, I think, potentially have clinical uh, implications. So, right. that's and kind of the context for what what we've been doing in these regards. That's incredible work, and that's really getting down right to uh, the cellular level in these images in in the living human. I guess it's the ultimate goal. Well, I think uh, I think Joe probably will address this because I know you want to bring a bit of the conversation to uh, metabolic or cellular activity. Right, and, exactly. Uh, that certainly is on the very cutting edge of this technology. But, um, yeah, I, you know, everybody, if we get into a discussion of structure versus function, I think the intersection of this debate, ongoing debate in glaucoma, is going to get down to the structural detection of cellular function. And we will get rid of the confusion over structural versus functional functional timing of progression in the neuropathy when we get to the ability of structurally detecting that cells are not any longer happy in their environment. And maybe we'll get to that uh, in a little bit. Right. So it's, it's interesting because we can, uh, really with Claude's with introduction, um, we can start in the future uh, and then we can work our way back to uh, the past and the present. But in, in terms of, uh, Claude, in terms of what you mentioned uh, with optic nerve head imaging and looking at the deeper tissues. Um, I wonder if you think that uh, it would be possible to identify parameters within, let's say, the lamina fibrosa um, that will give us those earliest cues uh, about the potential for damage, uh, the degree of damage and the potential for damage uh, in a given person's uh, optic nerve. That um, so that, that's a that's a great point, and of course, Joel's being gracious. He knows that <laughs> we're both very interested in this subject from our previous conversation, so he's kind of pitching me a soft and easy pitch to this. Um, I think that um, yeah, there's two themes that I would develop uh, in this conversation, and one is the clinical detection of change, which will aid us in knowing that a particular patient is not enduring their current level of risk factors. Uh, one of them being intraocular pressure. 
Um, and then there is the ability to predict susceptibility. And certainly the science that myself and my group of collaborators have dedicated them to, ourselves to is to try to really go after the building of a science that happens to be based in engineering on predicting susceptibility. In other words, finally, providing a science for setting target pressures and perhaps for other risk factors that contribute as well. Um, and in order to do that, what Joel has alluded to is we have to have anatomy. And so we have to be able to capture ultimately, in order to do this from what we understand so far, you're going to have to be able to describe what the engineers refer to as geometry, which I refer to as architecture. Um, in other words, the three-dimensional anatomy of the connective tissues and then ultimately the neural tissues and the cells and the blood vessels that all combined make up this tissue uh, environment that we call the optic nerve head. You need the anatomy, and then you need to be able to evaluate it dynamically in an individual eye in, in an individual patient. And that's what we're hoping this technology is on the verge of giving us. And, you know, you'll I think probably at some point we'll start talking about uh, differences in wavelengths and differences in bandwidth of the devices that are currently under development. And one of the things that Joel and uh, Jim Fujimoto uh, have pushed, um, along with Wolfgang Drexler, are, are the exploration of the next generation of wavelengths that are giving us deeper penetration into the tissues um, for the, just the reasons that, uh, that, that uh, both Joel and I have just alluded to. You need Ultimately, we're going to need to really capture the full anatomy, the full thickness of the sclera, the full thickness of the lamina, and then be able to watch how that moves um, over the course of prescribed fluctuations in intraocular pressure in order to understand how stiff or how compliant those tissues are, and then ultimately, you know, uh, see at what level of intraocular pressure, for example, capillary flow within the laminar capillaries or within the posterior ciliary arteries as they pass through the peripapillary sclera to achieve the choroid or the prelaminar nerve, at what level of intraocular pressure in a given eye uh, does that blood flow stop or is diminished? And um, we're not there yet, but I think that we're on the verge of beginning to achieve some of those goals for clinical imaging, and that would open up a whole new uh, era of um, predicting susceptibility, which I think we are all are separate from the issue of detecting change in clinical patients, which we are already in the era. I think uh, this next generation of prediction would have to do with what's a safe level of intraocular pressure, what's a safe level of blood pressure or perfusion pressure for a particular eye. Right, and it sounds like we'll also be... Uh fusing together vascular and mechanical as just one unified theory of, of damage. Yeah, I, I think that um, looking at the optic nerve and the way that, that Claude's described is, um, is fascinating, and it, it is um, really a novel target uh, for uh, the detection of uh, glaucoma and the susceptibility to um, uh, damage and, uh, in the future as well as... Um, uh, evaluating progression, and um, there are a number of questions I think that need to be answered uh, in looking at, at the tissue. And um, you know, one is 
what about the architecture uh, or the geometry uh, is important? What's relevant? Uh, is there relevance to the, um, the structure of the lamina post or the shape of the beams, the thickness, the, how they change, how the spaces change when you perturb the system uh, by um, modulating the intraocular pressure? Uh, uh, I think all of those things will, will be important in uh, assessing an individual's susceptibility, and that's, um, you know, we used to say that the Holy Grail was the detection of the disease and it was the detection of progression, and now it's predicting the future. Um, and knowing whether or not somebody's likely to be a, a fast progressor has, um, you know, aggressive disease, uh, I, I think will change the way that we manage uh, our glaucoma patients in a, uh, a very realistic way. Well, maybe we could go backwards in time to the present uh, and then try to figure out the steps that are needed to get us uh, to that future we were just talking about. I, I guess, at least for me, the present uh, standard is with with the uh, HRT, uh, scanning laser ophthalmoscope, and in this case it's confocal slices of the optic nerve that are reconstructed into a 3D image. And then... Uh, at least one of the analyses that's that's performed is comparing that to a, a mathematical model of a 3D reconstructed nerve that has glaucoma to help predict uh, how likely th- this particular optic nerve is to, to get glaucoma. And then it's also very sensitive in looking at changes in these scans over time, uh, with the topographic change analysis, but compared to what we've been talking about uh, in this conversation, um, that seems really crude in comparison to where we hope to get in the future. So what is it going to take to get us from where we are now to to those next steps to applying these things in living humans? Actually, before we go to how we get from where we are now to where we we talked about. Yeah. Um, can can we talk about where we are now for a second? Oh because, sure. Yeah. Keep keep on um, that. Because with the um, with the confocal scanning laser ophthalmoscope, uh, as with uh, scanning laser polarimetry or OCT, um, we're now able to detect the um, presence of disease with, or the absence with a fairly high degree of sensitivity and specificity. So our um, our ability is so much better now just using an instrument um, to, in a standardized way, uh, assess the patient to determine whether or not disease is present um, than we were 10 or 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think that what these devices do at a, at a minimum is to bring uh, all um, people using the device uh, essentially up to the level of an expert uh, examiner and it does a standardized evaluation. That's not to say that you don't need to interpret the image because you do um, and you can have a poor quality image or a bad quality analysis um, and, you know, it's the garbage in, garbage out uh, problem uh, that, that you need to deal with. So you, you still have to uh, uh, analyze the the data that you get from the machine, um, but it, it's much simpler to analyze those data than to look at a disk and say, 
uh, yeah, this disc is damaged and it's damaged in this area in this particular way um, because you have the uh, ability to um, do this uh, standardized um, uh, optical analysis of the, uh, of the tissue. Good. So uh, if I would add something to what Jill said, um, I, I would just say that um, uh, the to- topographic assessment uh, that you've alluded to and explained, Rob, uh, I think, you know, ha- uh, has been a very powerful advance um, for the, all the reasons Joel said and for uh, which has to do with deciding at, a, at the, the time of a single visit or cross-sectionally whether somebody, how likely somebody has damage. Right. Um, and then separate from that, I think the development of the change progression analysis um, uh, has been a very powerful uh, advance. And we can get into an argument uh, or at least a discussion about what is clinically important surface change, uh, because that's what that device detects, um, separate from what is statistically significant surface change. Uh, in other words, how much detectable change that exceeds variability represents a clinically important amount of change, and that's we're sort of, uh, I think that we are in the phase of making, of having discussions about um, that, but that's an achievement in the sense that we now can detect change uh, relative to variability. Um, and when, and so when you're saying when you're saying clinical change, you mean, I, I guess to clarify that, that would be something that would prompt us to decide whether we need to change current treatment or initiate yes. treatment, right? So, uh, you know, uh, how much change on a TCA map that meets the, cr- the statistical criteria for red and green dots, um, right. at what point do you intervene based on what you're seeing? Do you believe it enough to make the decision to alter uh, the patient's curtain, in this case, you know, level of intraocular pressure? That, that subject is certainly not known. But the point is, surface, I, I think that's, that's an accomplishment. And then we, we need to talk about the measurements of nerve fiber layer thickness and retardance um, that have occurred in, in parallel to that, um, which I think Joel might be better suited to discuss well, where we're at. In, that in, in terms of nerve fiber layer thickness, I... I I, I think the same can be said as uh, what, what you've described about um, looking at uh, the presence or absence of disease, so disease detection, and also progression detection, um, as with the, with the CSLO, with the confocal scanning laser ophthalmoscope. So scanning laser polarimetry uses polarized light uh, that is uh, shown into a patient's eye. Uh, it's reflected back to the detector. Uh, and then uh, the um, you mentioned clawed retardant. Uh, the change in phase uh, is measured, uh, and that corresponds to the amount of birefringent tissue that the light has passed through. And the retinal nerve fiber layer is birefringent. You have some other birefringent tissues in the eye, the cornea, the, the lens, uh, the uh, retinal pigment epithelium. Chloride is probably biofringent. The sclera is biofringent. Um, so you have a lot of other biofringent tissues, and we only want the information about the nerve fiber layer in this case. And uh, so there have been several iterations of scanning laser polarimetry uh, that uh, have 
come to market uh, over the past uh, 20 years. Uh, and what we have now uh, is a device that most of the time can uh, give an accurate assessment of the nerve fiber layer. Some of the time uh, will give um, what's called an atypical scan. In other words, a scan is confounded by other biofringent tissues uh, so that um, it's not giving an accurate uh, assessment. And you can tell the difference clinically, roughly, uh, by the pattern of biorefringence. In other words, if you have an, uh, the uh, expected bow tie pattern with a, uh, a lot of biorefringence superiorly and inferiorly that go out and mark your pattern, um, that's probably true your fiber layer as opposed to patchy pyrofringence that appears uh, in random places uh, in the um, in the image, uh, which is usually uh, a noise. It's um, this atypical uh, image. But so scanning laser polarimetry has has come a long way, and we're now at a point where it does very well for disease detection. And there are articles that are starting to come out now. Uh, with regard to measuring progression with this device, and there's software that's uh, available now for progression detection using scanning laser polarimetry. Uh, so again, same same story as what I said before, where you have a standardized way of assessing the parameter, uh, in this case progression, uh, and it uh, brings the uh, examiner up to uh, an expert level. Um, for optical coherence tomography, uh, you're using near-infrared light, looking at the reflection back, uh, again, from the retina. Um, you don't have the problems of biorefringence. Uh, you're just measuring the back reflection of that light. Uh, and in that back reflection, you have uh, varying intensities. Those intensities um, correspond to structures. Uh, the nerve fiber layer is very highly reflective, uh, and it turns out that you can use uh, algorithms to segment uh, those different layers uh, within the retina, and in particular the nerve fiber layer. Uh, and so we can measure nerve fiber layer thickness relatively directly uh, from the OCT uh, image. Um, and initially, we were doing that as a circle around the optic nerve head, uh, centered on the optic nerve, 3.4 millimeters in diameter. And then, um, and the, the purpose of that was to capture all, 100, all 360 degrees of the nerve fiber layer. Uh, and now we're able to do that in three dimensions, as Claude alluded to before when he was talking about the optic nerve. So we can get a three-dimensional volume. Uh, of the retina uh, centered wherever we like, but right now we're centering on the optic nerve or centering on the macula, uh, and then we're able to segment out the tissue layers, uh, in particular here the nerve fiber layer, um, and the uh, nerve fiber layer that can then be assessed in that entire volume of tissue as opposed to just in a circle around the optic nerve. Um, also, a circle can be created around the optic nerve, and it can be done post hoc, uh, so that you improve the reproducibility of measures because you're always putting the circle in the same place as opposed to with the older uh, iteration, the time domain OCT, um, the technician had to place the circle 
and you were never quite sure exactly where the scan uh, was was taken from. It was taken uh, from around the same area uh, from time to time, and the reproducibility is good, um, but it's not as good as if you're placing the circle on a OCT volume uh, where you know that that circle is centered in the same place over the optic nerve every time. Now, is this only with a spectral domain OCT? Right. And and so, like Claude said, spectral domain OCT is much, much faster than time domain OCT. So Stratus is time domain OCT, and all of these others are spectral domain OCT. And with the spectral domain OCT, you're acquiring uh, scans on commercial devices uh, from between 27,000 and 55,000 A scans per second. So there's no more going out and getting a Diet Coke while the A scan is happening. It's uh, They're happening very, very fast. Uh, and that's what allows us to get the three-dimensional data sets that we can then analyze uh, post-hoc. Right, because with the slow scan of the time domain, you would actually also have eye movement issues to keep you from actually measuring the exact same spot between scans. Isn't that correct? That, that's exactly right. It, yeah. It's, uh, in fact, maybe even a little bit surprising that the measure is robust enough so that the reproducibility is fairly good if you're looking at the mean near fiber layer thickness. So the, the standard deviation of measures is about 2.5 microns when you're looking at the mean near fiber layer thickness in that scan circle. Um, with spectral domain OCT, we're down to about a 1 micron standard deviation of measures. Uh, so just by uh, 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 taking this circle post hoc, uh, we're improving the reproducibility of measures. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll talk in a couple of minutes, I guess, about going beyond the circle and using all of the other information that's in the scan uh, as well. Right. So are you able, we're now able then to uh, do a post hoc circle that's a certain distance from the rim of the optic nerve as opposed to this uh, 3.4 millimeter cookie cutter. So, actually, that's an interesting question. I'd be interested in Claude's um, uh, take on this, too. Uh, so, being the person who came up with the idea of doing a standardized circle, the 3.4-millimeter circle centered on the optic nerve, the reason that I thought that this was a good idea um, was because it didn't depend on the size of the scleral canal or Brooks membrane opening, and it uh, would allow us to sample the retinal nerve fiber layer in roughly the same place in all eyes um, within a given uh, axial length, range of axial lengths. Um, and so uh, that standardization was the reason that I wanted to have uh, a 3.4 millimeter circle um, the same size in everybody as opposed to a variable distance from the edge of the optic nerve. Um, and I, I think that it does give a measure that's more comparable between people uh, than if you were varying the circle size. But I, I'd like to hear what uh, Claude's opinion is. Maybe maybe it's different. Maybe I'm off. Um, well, uh, actually, I have a couple of thoughts um, about it. I think the first point to make um, is that volumetric reconstruction of the nerve fiber layer um, uh, that that Joel is alluding to, um, that we will end up having a better assessment of nerve fiber layer, uh, uh, total nerve fiber layer volume, um, or some 
portion of the total nerve fiber layer volume uh, so that we can better compare between eyes. Um, and it may be better than the logic that Joel's employed for the, the circle scan. There, there's certainly, I mean, the first thing to be said is there's no um, obvious way to, to, to do this best at the current time, but I think that the volumetric reconstructions um, will allow us to get a better assessment, ultimately, what we are after. Um, I think everybody um, recognizes that what you're after is an a quantitative assessment of the total number of axons in the eye, right. um, which can be estimated from um, uh, a volumetric assessment of the total nerve fiber layer when you make begin to make assumptions about the average density of axons, um, uh, which those assumptions have lots of problems associated with them. But I, what I would say specifically to Joel's question is whether I think that's a good idea or not is I, I, I think the jury's out until we have a volumetric, the kind of volumetric reconstructions and enough eyes and then begin to play around with the best way to look at those. Um, uh, that gives you the best ability to compare differences between different eyes. Ultimately, I think that they're going to need to be linked to um, or they're going to need to be compared to actual axon counts. Um, uh, that's something that we're ultimately interested in doing in um, the monkeys that we're studying. And because we happen, between my collaborators and myself, we happen to have quite a large number of animals that we will end up with well over 100 um, normal uh, uh, monkey eyes in which we will have very good OCT imaging and will have the benefit of orbital optic nerve axon counts. And we hope to begin to lay some foundations for how to best look at that volumetric data to predict total axon numbers. That's further down the road. Um, I do, <clears throat> so I think the volumetric scans that Joel is alluding to is going to give us a better sense of where actually to make that measurement in most eye in order to have fair comparisons. Uh, I guess that's where I would leave it. Our own approach, <clears throat> um, we're just in the process of generating um, uh, large numbers of um, uh, volumetric reconstructions. Um, and so we, our, our intention is to look at this in a systematic way. Our intuition is some distance away from the edge of the disk margin, but I, you know, I don't have a lot more specific to, to add. I'm to really interested in those, uh, in those studies. Uh, um, I don't know uh, which is best either. And uh, yeah. I, so having the, having the data um, is, is always a better way of making a decision. Well, I think um, the point is that, Joel, that the, the, the important step uh, is the volumetric reconstruction. I think that's going to end up get, providing us with another sort of a next-generation logic for where to make the measurement. And, and so that's the most important thing for everybody here. Um, two things that, uh, that I think will be things that we'll come back to, but I want to make one point now, and that is um, the segmentation that Joel uh, mentioned and has been very much a part of the development of the automated segmentation of these measurements is um, uh, a second, you know, a second aspect of the work um, that has allowed many of the advances that are occurring. And um, so, for example, for all of our own work, uh, particularly in the nerve head, everything has to be what we call hand delineated, and it's a technique that has come directly from all of our work in histomorphometry. Um, 
the automated segmentation of uh, the nerve fiber layer itself is now pretty well established for most all of the instruments, and that's been a fairly um, approachable target. I won't say easy target because I know a huge amount of work that's gone into it. And, um, you know, progressively we're working towards some of the other basic structures that ultimately will be necessary to make good measurements. Brooks membrane, uh, the determination of Brooks membrane opening, all of these things will really advance uh, our abilities to quantify uh, these images. So um, all uh, a, a lot of the advances that we're looking at are going to be, be dependent upon those kinds of software issues, um, and so you need to follow the development of those um, uh, as they occur. The second point I want to make is the, about that Rob and Joel both alluded to was um, Joel's point about uh, the the importance of achieving three-dimensional reconstruction was one of the, the huge advances that comes from that is exactly what he alluded to, and that is a much more accurate retrospective assignment of measurements um, uh, within volumes of the same eye acquired over time. And in parallel to that, development is occurring uh, progressively within the commercial instruments, eye-tracking that allows at the time of acquisition for A-scan patterns to be acquired in precisely the same location that they were on previous occasions. So this is a bit of a subtle point to make, but um, by acquiring volumetric data, you can retrospectively go back and look at the same location over time. Um, it's an even further advance to be able to acquire data sets at the same location every time they're acquired. And I think progressively now, most of the commercial instruments are employing that technology, and that's a huge advance, um, uh, which is separate from the technical advance of spectral domain imaging, you know, that has made everything faster. There are two separate issues that have, that have occurred in parallel that have really advanced our ability to create um, uh, accurate volumetric reconstructions that can be compared um, uh, uh, over time. I think there are a couple of ways of achieving that goal, um, and the goal being registration of images, uh, essentially, right? Um, yeah. And we, uh, you, you can do that through tracking, or you can do it through a post-hoc software um, uh, modification of the image so that you align and, and register. Uh, there's work that's uh, being done in a number of places, including Horatio um, Shikawa's work uh, here uh, and uh, in collaboration with Intel Corporation uh, and with uh, Georgia Tech. And this, the, the ability to register images, as, as Bud was uh, uh, saying, um, I, I think will be very powerful in enabling um, much, much higher still um, uh, reproducibility of measures, and, and that should enhance our um, sensitivity and specificity for um, being able to detect disease and progression, uh, as well as the uh, work that we started out talking about, which is the future work, um, in uh, looking at uh, compliance or uh, predict prediction of uh, the likelihood of uh, progression of disease. Yeah, and... Um Two additional uh, points about that, and I think I've forgotten the first one already. Um, oh, um, I know. Uh, what I uh, and 
maybe it's I'm a bit peculiar about this, but um, the red the kind of registration that Joel is alluding to is a little bit different than the point I'm going to make. But it allows the it does allow the co-localization or registration of the OCT volume to clinical photographs. And while this is not necessary, absolutely necessary for the data to be very useful, um, I personally really emphasize um, uh, to everybody that I interact with about this, the importance of doing, of, of always having a clinical photograph uh, uh, that's co-localized to the OCT volume that you're looking at, because it really greatly enhances your understanding of the OCT visualized anatomy. And frankly, all of us are struggling, and we will continue to struggle with understanding what uh, we are seeing in the OCT uh, images um, because I believe that none of us really actually understand the anatomy um, well enough uh, three-dimensionally to make sense of the OCT images. For the most part, so far, um, the OCT seems to be getting the anatomy, and we need to readjust our understanding of it in order to appreciate that it is. Now, there's lots of caveats to that. But, well, the reflections um, are different, right? The, the reflections from the OCT are going to be different than what we see on histology, where a lot is passing through the tissue. Yeah. Uh, and it's also in vivo instead of processed tissue. Um, yes. and, and so there are enough differences uh, where I, I think that we're, uh, just like you said, we're, we're seeing new things. Um, they're probably real, uh, but we also don't really know uh, exactly what they mean. On the other yeah. hand, we have to be careful not to overread the OCT because there can be artifacts and errors in there, too. Yes. And the other thing that um, uh, I want to mention is this is uh, out of Joel's group. It's Hiroshi's work on creating new um, planes in which to visualize uh, OCT data. Um, I, it's funny uh, because I've always, it, well, as we looked through our histomorphometric, histomorphometric reconstructions, there were two things, a couple of things that were that all became very apparent to us. The, you know, the tissues had never been able to be looked at this way before. And number one was that motion itself was very important in depicting or realizing and recognizing surfaces. Um, you know, moving through something allows your brain to process, um, and you can see surfaces that you can't see within individual images, and that was one thing that was important. The second was that visualization really is a hypothesis-forming step in the, pro in the process. It's just really important to build the ability to visualize these data sets well because you learn so much from that process, so visualization by itself is important. And the third was that, you know, when you look at histologic sections, you never are in the actual plane of the anatomy. So, for example, you'd like to be able to look at um, the plane of the sclera, which is, of course, uh, a sphere, and you need to then cut the volume in a spherical shape in order to follow the, the, the plane of the sclera as you're looking at it, or the plane of the lamina. And Hiroshi, um, uh, if I remember correctly, um, has really implemented that kind of viewing capabilities within OCT volumes, and I'll switch over to, to Joel at this point. Yeah, it's a uh, malleable C-mode plane. So uh, saying that in, in plain language, puns not intended, um, but <laughs> what you're able to do is to adjust your view to a given tissue layer. 
uh, and you can look specifically at that tissue layer and you can move through it. Um, right, so if that tissue layer is a sclera, you can adjust the, the plane to the sclera and you can look through that. Uh, the t tissue plane is the internal limiting membrane. You can, again, adjust that plane, etc. cetera. Uh, so bringing out things like um, pigment epithelial detachments or epiretinal membranes or uh, central serous chorioretinopathy. Uh, there are so many different things that you can you can see when you've adjusted the plane properly. So that uh, just like when you're doing surgery and you're dissecting, you want to be in the right plane. Uh, and when you are in the right plane, things look in a, look a certain way as opposed to when you're cutting through a variety of planes. This allows you to surgically de dissect the correct plane, but that surgery is being done optically. So it, it's a true optical biopsy. One of the really interesting things is the vasculature of the macula. And you can see the different types of vasculature within the different layers of the macula. It's different in the ganglion cell layer or in the interplexus, in the internuclear layer or the outer nuclear layer. Uh, if you look at the vasculature in those layers, they, they have different uh, types of vessels, and those vessels have different patterns. And my prediction is that, um, and we don't yet have this facility um, uh, to look uh, at data in this way, either within our histomorphometric volumes or our OCP volumes. Um, and it's been something that, that I've wanted to move up on our priority list for software development. Um, we just haven't gotten there. But, I've, but it, it, the comment by Joel about the macular vascular pattern is an interesting one, and not surprised to hear that. And I think the same thing will be true as we look at the uh, circle of Zinhaler vasculature and the laminar capillary takeoff um, from the circle of Zinhaler, I think that, that the complexity of this um, is not is uh, very, very, very difficult to appreciate um, from standard histologic uh, sectioning, and it really will require that kind of visualization plane to better appreciate this complexity, and particularly if in terms of trying to understand how it changes uh, with age and with disease. So it's, it's all incredible stuff in our future, but maybe we could try to reel this back to today and what we should be doing now with our patients. Um, we don't, I mean, a lot of people don't have all of these instruments. Uh, some of us have one of them. And any recommendations for what people should be doing now? I think that all of the instruments um, have shown themselves to be pretty good at uh, disease detection, uh, and we're starting to see data come out now on progression detection for all of the instruments. Um, HRT, there's been progression detection uh, validation for for some time now, but as um, you know, as, as Claude mentioned. Uh, that's statistically significant and the clinically relevant may not be exactly the same. And so we still require interpretation, as I mentioned, of the images for the detection of disease, but also for detection of progression. Is this really a relevant a change that we're seeing, or is it just a statistical anomaly? Um, and so uh, I, I think that we have technology that's clinically useful, that's available for the clinician now, whether it's uh, confocal scanning laser ophthalmoscopy, scanning laser polarimetry, or OCT. Um, OCT is probably the technology that's changing the most rapidly 
uh, and that's being driven by the fact that you have multiple different uh, companies that are now uh, making the OCT uh, device and the spectral domain OCT device, um, and that's driving innovation, uh, and I, I believe it'll also drive the price down. Oh, that's good because it is expensive. It's all, it is. also even though it, um, it's driving innovation, which is fantastic, but it also has excluded the old data with each new generation, which has been a little bit challenging if you're trying to follow your patients over time, and you can't use that old data to see if they've progressed. Yeah, there's a paper that we just published. Um, it's actually possible to use the Stratus data. Um, uh, the old the old time domain data um, with uh, the spectral domain uh, machines um, using specialized software that was created again by Hiroshi together with John Shik Kim, uh, the first author on that paper, um, and it allows that sort of backward compatibility um, of the of the technology. Unfortunately, it, it hasn't been implemented by any of the, uh, the companies uh, and. Uh, so if anybody's out there listening from uh, any, of, any of the companies, uh, give us a call at University of Pittsburgh. <laughs> that would be great. <laughs> any other uh, clinical correlates from uh, Claude? Yeah, for... I would just add to Joel's comments. I would say um, uh, two uh, points, maybe. Um, pra- on a very practical level, you know, for somebody who... Uh, uh, is not going to be able to afford all of these technologies. Um, um, I think that choosing to stay with um, uh, surface to, surface topography or neurofiber layer thickness, whether it's uh, by the current generation of OCT images or, or not, um, if you have to, to do that, I would recommend staying with one uh, and, and continuing going forward. Uh, um, that's a hard decision. Uh, but one thing that's going to come out of OCT imaging is surface topography. It's just a matter of time. In other words, the data to create surface maps based on volumetric re- uh, OCT imaging is there. The ILM is you know, beautifully imaged. And from my own bias, the fact that you will capture um, enough information about the neural canal opening, which is some relationship there, some relationship to Brooks membrane opening, um, and use that as a reference plane. I do believe that reference plane is going to be a better long-term reference plane, or some variant of it. Uh, it may be that the actual reference plane ends up some distance away along Brooks membrane. Um, but the fact of the matter is that one of the benefits of volumetric reconstruction, I believe, is going to be a much more stable reference plane. Not that it will not itself change through the neuropathy, but it will change a lot less than the surface of uh, uh, of the internal limiting membrane, which is what's currently used now for surface topography. So, um, you know, uh, the equivalence of TCA change is eventually going to emerge from volumetric um, OCT imaging. And... I think that that concept will be eventually a part of OCT imaging. Um, and there will be, I think, better reference planes, for, frankly, for all of our measurements. Um, right. Once um, we work towards uh, development of those, I think the data is going to be there in volumetric reconstruction. So, and the final point is just there's a huge, Joel alluded to it earlier, but there's a huge developing push towards the characterization rate of change 
um, uh, rather than event-based, um, using event-based criteria for change detection. And the importance of that is that they, the goal of that will be to identify the people who are uh, either uh, progressing most rapidly um, over the course of the initial period of time you're watching them, or they ha- they're at risk for progressing rapidly. Um, and then the importance of that is that we will then focus, presumably focus our efforts on following those patients more closely and treating them more aggressively. So all of these technologies are set up for characterization of change uh, in terms of rate of change over time, and, and people should bear that in mind as they go forward. And you're talking about one day having something equivalent to the... Uh glaucoma progression analysis on the Humphrey for this sort of data, giving a predictor of Well, you know, the the glaucoma progression analysis is an event-based characterization of change. I think that um, the the more uh, apt analogy would be to something like progressor progressor software in which you, you do linear regressions of every individual point and or the pooled parameters like uh, PSDI, and there's a recent paper, a series of papers from Anders Heil and Bel Shahan, Ted Garway Heath, about rate progression uh, using visual field data. I think all of this is going to come into structural imaging as well um, within the next five years, and people are going to progressively need to be aware of the fact that they're going to be looking at linear regression change uh, in addition to event-based criteria like um, okay, this person's now out of their range of variability. We need to confirm that one or two more times, an event-based approach. Great. So all the glaucoma specialists can be replaced by machines and they'll all be uh, be able to retire. No, they're just, they're just <laughs> not going to happen. They're not going to happen. Uh, we still need to be docs. We still need to uh, analyze any, anything that comes out of these machines. That's right. I mean, and, uh, the clinical correlation also is uh, is critical with any of these uh, data. Yeah, absolutely. They're all just things that we correlate with the clinical picture and bring the patient in and the decision making to figure out what we're going to do about it. Well, well, thank you both, Joel and Claude. We certainly covered a lot of territory in our more than ten minutes of discussion <laughs> on on imaging. Uh, I, I guess we could just call this a wrap then. Well, that was that great. Okay? Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. Okay. Pleasure Take, too. Nice talking with Joel and Rob. Take, Take care. Bye bye. Bye. Bye bye. That's our show for today. Be sure to subscribe via iTunes or RSS feed so you won't miss an episode. Or follow me on Twitter to learn more about upcoming episodes and other news about glaucoma, electronic medical records, and technology. I produce Talking About Glaucoma approximately once each month, or as time permits, in AAC format that includes chapter markers and show notes, and MP3 format that does not. Once again, on Twitter, I am Rob Scherzer, my blog is wholewaterrob.com, and my website, westcoastglaucoma.com. Look for me everywhere. Please help detect and treat glaucoma by keeping yourself informed.